Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Genesis chapter 34. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I'm going to begin reading at the first verse. I want to tell you so you don't think I've lost the place. I'm going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. I know it's not common. Usually in modern preaching, we read two verses of Scripture and preach. But I want to read a lengthy because this is a complicated story. And I want you to have the whole story before you. It's also a little bit of a, little bit of a grimy story. So I want the, the whole thing before you as we start. I'm going to preach tonight on the, on the journey home. Chapter 34 of the book of Genesis. When I skip, I'll tell you so you can follow me. I think they'll also have it on the screen. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. By the way, just pause. In both English and in Hebrew, it is not clear that that is a rape. It, 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 it may be a seduction. So the language is not clear that it's forcible. Verse 3, and his soul clave unto Dinah. It means he fell in love with her. And the daughter, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spoke kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spoke unto his father, Hamor, and said, get this damsel for me to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field. And Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved. And they were very angry, wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. Why? Not necessarily because it was forced, but because he was a Gentile. And verse 8, And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her to him to wife, and make you marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade herein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and to her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes. And what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as you say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully, and said, Because he hath defiled Dinah, our their sister. And they said unto him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters into us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Now skip to verse 24. And Hamor and and said, and, and unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city, and every male in the city was circumcised. Verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's br brethren, each took his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew, killed all the males. 
They slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain. They spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones, their children and their wives. They took captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said unto Simeon and Levi or Levi, you have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me and I shall be destroyed. I and my house, meaning them. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? Continue reading in chapter 35. And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way in which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak, or buried them, if you will, under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel. He and all the people that were with him, and he built there an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. It's a complicated passage of scripture, isn't it? And one that we need the Holy Spirit to approach. One more time, will you put your hands on your Bible and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before this passage, forbid it, Lord, that we should pick and pry at it, but that it would pry us open. And deal with us in the inner person. And when we leave here tonight, we may say to one another, even in hushed tones, the Lord has spoken to us and dealt with us. We believe you for it, God. We thank you in the wonderful name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. It's a pretty grimy little story. So here, here's this girl, Dinah. It says she goes to be with, visit with some of the Gentile girls in the area. In the context of that somehow, she is either seduced or molested. We are left to make our minds up on that. Either way, it's a Gentile boy. And the boy falls in love with her and wants to marry her. And she evidently wants to marry him because it makes a point of the fact he spoke kindly to her. He, he, he spoke love to her. And so the father of that boy meets with the father of Dinah and the brothers of Dinah. And he says, look, we'll do anything. We'll do anything. What, what, do you, what do you want us to do? We'll pay any dowry, anything. And the brothers of Dinah, Jacob's sons, two of them say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to be circumcised like Jewish men. And then Dinah can move in with you and marry Shechem the boy. Shockingly, this is astonishing. They do. 
Not only that, they convince all the men in the city to do it because that's the requirement of Shechem and Levi. While they are recovering from that wound, Levi and Simeon go into the city with their swords and destroy the city. They kill every adult male. They kidnap all the children. They capture all their wives. They sack the city, take all the spoil, the loot, and leave behind the corpses of these men who acted more honorably than the Jews. And when they come home with all of this loot and these kidnapped captives, these children and these women slaves, Jacob is horrified. He says, what have you done? What have you done? He said, you make my name stink in, in this whole country. Nobody will stand for us. None of the tribes, the Canaanites, the, the, the Jebusites, the Hivites, no, nobody's going to stand for us now. What have you done? There, there comes into every life at some point, whether it is caused by others or by our own sins or by circumstance, some sudden and shocking moment of self-awareness. This may be circumstantial. It may be God wrought. It may be the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we come to that moment of introspection where we suddenly, like Jacob, say, is this what I've become? Is this what I'm now like? Or as a culture, or as a family, or as a country, we somehow or another stare into the mirror of the gospel and we, we suddenly, as if, as if we've been in a, a cloud of deceit, we suddenly see and we're shocked and horrified. Is this what we're like? Can you, can you feel Jacob's pain? Is this what we are now? Lying, deceitful? Genocidal murderers wipe out the entire male population of a city, capture all their wives, capture their children, turn them into slaves, steal their livestock. Is, is this what we are? There was some level of horror in Jacob. He was aghast. And here's the thing. These guys tricked him. This whole thing about the circumcision, they never meant it. They just wanted them incapacitated by the procedure. But Jacob was no newcomer to trickery. There is something in us, is there not, when we see the, our own sins exaggerated in our children that horrifies us. Jacob is stunned. He's, a, he's been a master tricker. He's been a problem child from the beginning. But this is at a whole new level. This is murder. This is mass murder and deceit. And Jacob is just absolutely horrified, filled with probably guilt. I may be projecting on him, but probably with guilt, certainly with horror and with fear. Remember what he says? Nobody's going to help us. All the tribes in the whole country will turn against us now. You've made my name. He says, you did this. You did it without telling me. 
And now you've made my name stink. His reputation, the circumstance, the situation, it is that moment where he suddenly comes to some kind of introspective, self-examining moment where he says, this can't go on. Now listen to Dr. Mark. No progress will ever be made in a marriage, a relationship, a life, a business, a company, a Christian experience until somebody somewhere looks in the mirror and says, we can't go on like this. We can't go on like this. Some, we, we can get to the place where we so peacefully coexist with the confusion and the anger and the, the bitterness and the unforgiveness in a marriage until it just all becomes commonplace. We get used to it. And then at some point, somebody has to say, baby, we can't do this anymore. We can't live like this. We can come to the place where, like Jacob, perhaps we get to the place where we settle in with our own spiritual life where it is. We move in among the Gentiles of the land and kind of it becomes bland until something happens, some situation, some circumstance, until we look in the mirror and say, this has got to stop. That's a critical moment. I believe it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, his prevenient grace that suddenly whispers deep, deep within. Why does somebody that has tried and failed to get free of drugs or alcohol year after year, decade after decade sometimes, why does suddenly it stops? Why do suddenly they're able to move into a new level and overcome? Well, I believe it's because at some point or another, at a level that they've never in all before, they may have said, I need to quit. I need to stop. This has got to. But there comes that moment of such horror where maybe there's just been so much wickedness and sin and failure and, and prison and all the rest of it that they look in the mirror and say, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. Enough is enough. There is such a thing as becoming numb to catastrophe. We're struggling with it right now here in the United States. The genocide in Rwanda, the mass murder in the Congo, earthquake in Mexico, drugs and drug cartels, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes, until finally we just, we just can't even see the pain anymore. We see starving babies come on the television and we just change the channel. And we become desensitized to the human agony. The same thing can happen to our own spiritual sensitivity to sin, where we suddenly realize I'm living with, putting up with, enduring stuff in my life and in my, the people around me that I ought to be horrified at that I ought to be shocked at. We can come to that about our nation, where we live with abortion, the, the plague of unwed pregnancies and divorce and the murder rate and the violence and the drugs. And I think somehow or another, we've gotten to the place where we just say to one another, maybe say to ourselves, well, this is life in the city. I, I was flabbergasted a few months ago, were you when that horrible bomb went off in London and the mayor of London said, this is what it's like to live in a big city? It's 
just want to say, is this it? Is this it? Is this what we're going to have to say to ourselves? This is just how I am. This is how my family is. This is how my city is. This is how we are. Or can we come to that place where we say like Jacob did, that's all right, that's it. Now that's it. That's the bottom line. I'm not going to stay here, sit here, be here, live like this, think like this anymore. Then comes the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Then comes the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Deep within that dark moment. And it's scary. Look, if you, nobody enjoys conviction. Nobody likes it. <laughs> That's why people get angry in church. Ladies, you get out to the car and your husband is saying, oh, I hate that church. I don't like going there. The music is so loud. The drummer's so crazy. They have to lock him up in a glass cage. <laughs> it's cold in there. And the TV cameras. Oh, not to have TV cameras in church. Then ladies just sit there and smile. Five old sleepy dogs laying up under an oak tree on a hot summer day. A little boy sneaks up on them and throws a rock. They may all scatter, but the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit. No, no, nobody likes conviction. Nobody likes that feeling when suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we just realize, I can't be like this anymore. But it is critical Nobody changes anything until they come to the moment where they say, all right, that's it. That's enough. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. In the midst of all that, in the darkness of that, in the, in the pain of all that, there comes that faint whisper of hope. It says, I, I, I've held this mirror up to you to see what you're like, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And now I'm going to tell you what to do, the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says, I'm not just telling you that you're bad. I'm telling you this is where you are, but if you'll keep listening, if you won't change the channel, I'll show you where to go. I'll show you what to do. I'll give you the direction. So Jacob's standing there horrified by the situation that they're in. His family has just degenerated into a, this craziness. And then suddenly, from deep within him, comes the voice of the Lord. I love it in the Bible when it says, and God speaks to somebody. Now, what does that sound like? I mean, is, that the, is it the voice of Charlton Heston coming out of the clouds? That's what it is in Hollywood. Jacob. But maybe... Maybe it's nothing other or different than exactly the way we hear from the Holy Spirit. Maybe the Lord spoke to Jacob the same way he speaks to you. Maybe Jacob didn't hear some Hollywood voice. Maybe in the midst of his pain and self-confrontation and introspection and the horror of what had become of his life and his family, maybe he just within himself, he heard, I got to go back to Bethel. That's the last place I had a dramatic, personal, intimate encounter with God. 
I'm going back to Bethel. If in the midst of the sudden realization of where you really are in life, you will keep listening. God will also tell you what to do next. Then comes the impulse to make a move. Not just to lie there wallowing in guilt and horror, but to, to move, to change. Remember in the, in the story of the prodigal son, which Jesus taught, he comes to this moment, the same kind of thing of this self-recognition and revelation. Look at me. I'm laying in a pig pen. I'm eating pig food. I'm a nice Jewish boy. How did I get to this? I don't have anything. I've lost everything. I've used up every penny I ever had, snorted it up my nose. My friends have left me. I don't have anything. I'm laying here like a pig. What's the next thing he says? I will arise and go to my father. I will arise and go to my father. That's the impulse that follows the, the reality of self-revelation. This is who I am, but I'm not going to die here. It's not supposed to end like this. I will arise. I will arise and make a move. The determination to change course follows the reality of the situation as God sees it. Now, the Spirit now draws us to the place where we're supposed to be. If he makes us aware that this is not where we're supposed to be, and we suddenly obey that impulse to arise. Okay, what? Okay, what? Now he draws us to where we are supposed to be. The specific directions may vary. God spoke to Jacob to go to Bethel. So when God speaks to us, the specific directions may vary person to person. They will vary. But the reality is that God always draws us to the same place ultimately, and that's to himself. The Lord said... The Lord said to Jacob, go back to Bethel where I met you when you fled from your brother Esau. <laughs> there is something in us. I suppose it's pride. I suppose it's just sinful pride that says I'm not going to reach out to God when I'm in a problem. So it's hard. You know, I'm not just... I've been on my own. I fought through. Now I've got this big crisis. Now I've got this big issue. My marriage is in a mess. I've got a challenge. I've got my business is in a mess. I, I'm not going to be one of those guys that turns to God in a problem. <laughs> Listen to me. Everybody turns to God in a problem. That's what God says to Jacob. Remember the last time you had a crisis when your own brother was trying to kill you? That's the last time you had a really intimate encounter with me. Go back to that place. So ask yourself, when was the last time you had a really dynamic, powerful, personal, intimate encounter with God? And you say, I'm just, I don't, I just don't, I'm just not there. I'm not there right now. What does God say? Go back there. Return to that place and meet me where you met me. Meet me as you met me. What does it sound like when God says that? It is an awakened sensitivity. It may not be an audible voice, but it is a stirring within us. Somehow an awakened hope that there is some other us. 
some better us that we left somewhere on a shelf and we can go back and find it. Often, usually perhaps, it is in a previous moment of need when I fled from Esau. The last time I really had to deal with guilt and sin. When my business was in distress. When I thought my wife was going to leave me. When my husband was sick. Or at some heightened moment of great sensitivity, a revival. There may be people here that say, my last great encounter with God, my last intimate moment with God was not in a moment of distress. It was in some great, exciting worship service. It was at a conference. It was when I'd heard a, a, a sermon that changed my life. It was at an altar. God says, okay, then go there. Go there. Remember where you met me before and meet me there. Get, get back to that street corner. And so Jacob says, we're going back to Bethel. Everybody pack up. But as we load up for the journey, when we actually decide to get up and go after it, we realize that we can start the journey as we are, but we cannot finish the journey as we are. This is the progressive work of sanctification. We sing it all the time, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. God takes us just as we are. We start toward God standing up in the rags of our own sinfulness. But the closer to his throne we get, we suddenly realize we need to kneel down. We suddenly realize I start toward God like this, but there's stuff on me, in me, that I don't want to get into his intimate presence with that stuff on me and in me. So they get up, they pack, they start to leave, and then Jacob stops the whole parade, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of you have got the idols of this area. This is, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. These people, these brothers of Dinah are outraged because their sister has been spoiled by a Gentile boy, and they've got Gentile idols packed in their own suitcases. He says, we're hypocrites, idolaters. We've shown all this outrage and violence over something that happened to our daughter, and we ourselves are no better than the Gentiles we killed. He said, bring those idols and get them out of here. But then there's another thing. He says, now, what about these earrings? Now, look, I'm not making a case about earrings, okay? Everybody stay calm. I saw five women go like this and four men. Okay. No, it is that, it is that the earrings that the men wore were artifacts of the of the Gentile culture in which they, in which they lived. They weren't, they weren't Jewish decorations. The Jewish men didn't wear earrings. The Gentile men around them wore the earrings. So they had Gentile gods and the artifacts of a Gentile culture. And they said, we, if we're going back to Bethel, if God's going to meet us at Bethel, we got to get some stuff out of our lives. Now, this, this is the... This is the, the difficult thing to preach in the contemporary American society because everybody wants a kind of a, like a, a pain-free gospel. And, and I've, heard, I've heard it preached. 
You don't, you don't have to change anything to be a Christian. You ever hear that? You don't have to change anything. That's true in the sense of the initiation by faith. You, you're saved by faith. But I, somebody needs to say, there's some stuff you got to change. There's some things that need to change. There's some artifacts of the culture around us that ought not to be on us. There's some idol worship of the culture around us that ought not to be in us. And as we make the progression, as we begin to find this awakened hunger for God, God, I want you. I want to know you as I used to know you. I want to experience you as I used to experience you. I, I, I'm going back to Bethel. I'm going back to Bethel. I see what I'm like, and I, I'm getting up right now. I can't wait till I'm perfectly clean to start back to Bethel. But as I move toward Bethel, I become not decreasingly, but increasingly aware of the things that need to change by the time I get there. I preached one night years ago at a Methodist church, not all that far from here. And afterward, a, a man said, I, I, I have to talk to you and I have to talk to you tonight. He said, I, uh, I came forward tonight, gave my life to Christ. And I, he said, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, great. He said, but I got to tell somebody something and you've got to tell me what I have to do. So tell me what it is. He said, I'm a very well-off, prosperous man. He said, I own an automobile dealership. And he said, I'm, I'm very well off. But he said, nobody knows, not even my wife. I bought that automobile dealership with insurance fraud. Years and years and years ago, he said, I owned a business that was failing and I burned the building down. I committed arson. I burned it down. I took the insurance money from that and I bought this dealership. And he said, I'm a wealthy man. He said, I want God more than anything in the world. But he said, I feel like the Lord has told me I'm going to have to go to the insurance company and I'm afraid I'll have to go to prison. He said, pastor, can you assure me I won't have to go to prison? I said, no. No. No, I said, I cannot assure you of any such thing. I said, I can only assure you of one thing. I can assure you that if you suppress this impulse to get clean, you will be in worse shape than you are tonight. I said, I'm not asking you, can you live as you have lived for the last 20 years since you committed arson and, and insurance fraud? I'm asking you, can you live the next 20 years like that? And he said, I can't. He said, I can't live like this anymore. I, listen, he said, I've got to change. I've got to change. I've got to get this out of me. He said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, call your lawyer. <laughs> do not just call the insurance company and say, hey, I cheated you out of a lot of money, and here I am. I said, call your lawyer. And then you and your lawyer go to the insurance company. That man was in agony. He said, I've got to go home and tell my wife. She was almost hysterical. I met with them. I prayed with them. But they came to the place where they said, we've got to get this right. 
We got to get this right. No matter what it costs. He said, if I have to spend 10 years in prison, I'll be better off at the end of that 10 years than I am tonight with this thing hidden in myself. Now, I like it when stories end right. They went with their lawyer, man, his wife and the lawyer. They went to see the insurance company and the insurance company said, it's too long ago. It's too late. There's nothing we can do. It's finished. Statute of limitations has run out on it. Just don't tell us about it. <laughs> and he said, what are you telling me to do? The guy at the insurance company said, I'm telling you, go home. Go home. The man said, don't you understand? I came here to get right with God. The insurance company said, we have nothing to do with God. <laughs> and that night, that night, after 20 years of that thing buried deep inside of him, that night at the altar of that little Methodist church, that man and his wife received the Holy Spirit. That night. And the earrings, I don't, think that's, I don't think that represents horrible stuff. It's just things that we've been told are okay, and they're not all that okay. They just don't belong on us. They don't belong in us. They ought not to be part of our lives. Getting rid of them will cost us. It's a powerful little passage of Scripture. It says, took all those idols... And all those gold earrings, and they didn't sell them, they buried them. They got them out of their lives and off of their lives and off of their bodies and buried them. And they said, by the time we get to Bethel, we want to be clean. Now, here's the last part. You've been very patient. So an interesting thing. Jacob travels all this way saying to himself, I want to get to Bethel. 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 When he finally gets to Bethel, what's the first thing he does? He renames it. Bethel is so important to him. When he gets back there, he changes the name. It's been called Bethel, and he changes the name of it to El Bethel. Beit, Beit El. Beit in Hebrew means house. El means God. So Bethel actually means Beit El, the house of God. But when he gets there, he changes it to El, Beit El, the God of the house of God. In other words, what he says, I thought I was on a sentimental journey. I thought it was on a nostalgia trip that if I'll just go back to some place where I left everything, everything would look the same and feel the same and I'd be the same. And suddenly he said, I realized getting back to that place was not enough. I want to get back to the God I met in that place. Early on in my evangelistic ministry, I, get in, I got invited to a lot of camp meetings. Camp meetings. I preached them. I love to preach them. They're fine. I finally just about quit doing them. I may do one here and there, but I don't like... Because a lot of it is nothing but a nostalgia trip. It's a glorified family hootenanny. Everybody just gets together and have banana pudding and... Aren't these old sawdust trails good? This I... Right here. This is where Granny Wilson got saved right here in 1913. 19 right there. Nothing's happened in here since then, but there it is. And I, I, I 
just need you to hear me. I'm not making light of Granny Wilson. What I'm saying is, I don't want to kneel where Granny knelt. I want to find the God Granny found. Azusa Street. We heard all that. Azusa Street, Azusa Street, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came and the Pentecostal movement began in America. Azusa Street. We've heard it and heard it. When I... I went to Los Angeles, preached at the Dream Center, and I said, somebody take me to Azusa Street. They said, you don't want to go down there. I said, I want to see Azusa Street. Let's go to Azusa Street. We got down there. It's just a house with a chain-link fence and a sign that says the birthplace of Pentecostalism fell over in the grass. I said, this is it. They said, we warned you. So you'll hear this, we're going to have this big meeting, Azusa Street, this, Azusa Street, that, all that kind of thing. I, I, I just am saying this. I treasure the history of Azusa Street. I thank God for what happened there. I thank God for the Pentecostal movement. But I don't want to go kneel at a busted down house in Los Angeles with a sign in the grass. I don't want to go to Azusa Street. I want to find the God they knew at Azusa Street. Back to Bethel is never enough. It's an initial impulse. I want to go back to where I knew God. I want to go back to where I knew God. And that's where you start. And then you clean yourself up as you go and you get closer and closer to that intimate encounter with God. But then when you get there, you realize it's not about the place. It's not about the church. It's not about the altar. It's about the God of the house of God. El Bethel. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.